The Law Report with Tyron Key. And a very good evening to you from tonight's Law Report program. Well, as you know, once a month here on The Law Report, we run a legal clinic trying to answer a range of questions on a number of different topics. And tonight, being the second Monday of the month, it's again time to open the lines for you to ask that legal question that doesn't quite fit into the other topics that we discuss here on The Law Report. So tonight, no fixed topic, but please note that we won't be taking calls on labour or property issues as we'll be dealing with labour law next week, Monday the 17th of June, and property law the week after on Monday the 24th of June. And before we begin, just a reminder that if you need any information regarding the Law Report, you can find it on Facebook. Just go to Law on SAFM. If you'd still like to contact me directly, you can email me on law at safm.co.za. And if you'd like to download a podcast of the show, you'll find the link on the Facebook page. Well, we've received a few emails since the last time we did a law clinic, so we'll be dealing with those first, and then we'll be taking your calls. So you can call us now on 0892 10 2010, leave your name and contact number, and we'll call you back as soon as we've dealt with the emails. I'm joined once again this evening by attorney Nicolene Skuman, owner and founder of Skuman Attorneys, Conveyances and Notaries Public. Nicolene, welcome back to the show. It's been a while. Yes, it has. Thank you for having me as always. If you have any questions, just a reminder, you can call us on 0892 10 2010. The Standard Bank Jazz Festival kicks off in Grahamstown on the 27th of June. SAFM is proud once again to be the official radio partner. Join us for 10 days of amazing jazz and blues, featuring Mikasa, Esavan Naidu and dozens more local and international jazz superstars. Also featuring the 2013 Young Artist Award winner for jazz, Shane Cooper. SAFM will be there to bring you some amazing performances and keep you in the loop with all the backstage action. But there's nothing quite like being there, so book now at CompuTicket and head to Grahamstown for the Standard Bank Jazz Festival. Looking to access the Chinese market? The Department of Trade and Industry invites applications to the South African Expos in China to be held in Jiamen, Shanghai and Beijing from 8 to 13 September 2013. South African investment projects and exports will be showcased. The closing date is the 14th of June 2013. For inquiries, contact Warabile Makonga on 012-394-3745 or email omakonga at the dti.gov.za. The DTI, empowering industries and broadening economic participation. The Law Report with Tyron Key. Right, so as I mentioned, we're going to be dealing with some of your emails first. And the first one is from Louise. She wants to know, Nicolene, if you can please cover the options, structures and or processes that are available to a person who is not properly able to manage their affairs due to, for example, a stroke, a car accident or advancing frail health. And then she says, assume, please, that there are no children, siblings, parents or spouse that can act on behalf of the person. So I'm expecting that it would possibly have to be third parties or legal entities, processes or structures Mm -hmm. that are not part of the immediate family network. Now, if you do not legally nominate, say, a niece or a nephew, sorry, if you do legally nominate a niece or a nephew and they then move overseas are they still able to act in this trustee position if they are no longer South African residents or citizens the listeners also heard that a general power of attorney lodged with a lawyer does not suffice in respect of third parties having to take care of for example a frail person's a frail parent's affairs you actually need to have a separate banking power of attorney lodged with each bank and then a separate power of attorney lodged with SARS is this correct Well, um, actually, on the basis of of this question and a previous discussion we've had on the program, we dug into the aspect of living wills and powers of attorney and the appointment of a curator bonus. 
And um, then I undertook to do some research, and I've subsequently actually written a paper that has been published on the legal brief, so polity.org. I'll send the link through after the show, so we can okay. post that on the Facebook page. But briefly, it seems when I started digging into this position, it's actually not a simple matter at all. The uh, living will, as we know it, or a directive which authorizes someone to take healthcare decisions on your behalf. Well, this can take um, the form of a power of attorney where you appoint someone to act in your stead and make healthcare decisions, or a living will where you um, basically enlist or you list your uh, decisions in terms of what you want and do not want in terms of healthcare. This is a bit of a complex issue, especially because it touches on the issue of euthanasia and where one draws the line between refusing care legitimately in terms of our law and, and when not. So I want to make it very clear that a living will and a power of attorney relating to healthcare decisions is a very different animal to what the listener is talking about here. That's a general power of attorney as we as we know it. Um, for, for lack of, of a more specific phrase, powers of attorney can take various forms, um, including what they know as overseas as an advanced directive. Now, as I say, it's a very complex situation. There is a notion that in terms of our common law, you can execute a power of attorney. And that power of attorney can either kick in in terms of it being conditional. So something should happen before the power of attorney becomes um, valid and legally enforceable. For example, you are diagnosed with a terminal illness, you know you will become incapacitated and um, unable to deal with your day-to-day -day affairs, so you will then draft such a document to start or kick in when you're physically unable to do so yourself. The other type that you get is an enduring power of attorney, something that gets executed immediately and continues forever until, um, of course, you fall away, in other words, become deceased. So those are the two options that people often use, but they've got fundamental problems. If they're not drafted correctly, there's legal uncertainty as to when this becomes effective, or in terms of an enduring power of attorney, there's a school of thought that a decision and decision-making power is such a continuous um, exercise that you cannot nominate someone to act in your stead forever and a day without you having any input or especially when you lose the capacity to do so, specifically mentally, um, mental incapacity as such. So my advice to this listener would rather be to approach the relevant court and to apply for a curator bonus, to, to be appointed as such, whether it be a company, a attorney, or someone in a professional capacity or then a family member. That follows the proper procedure to test and measure whether the person is actually completely incapacitated and the, it will regulate uh, what can and cannot be done in that person's stead. When one wants to be proactive, these other measures do exist, but they come with a reasonable degree of risk. I would recommend if, if people want to take the route of planning ahead for incapacity, be very careful. It's not bulletproof. It may be challenged in a court of law. There are clear, two very clear schools of thought on this. The, the conservative approach is if someone is incapacitated, you need to go to court and do a, a curator application. And the court will then consider all the relevant facts and set parameters for, for that engagement. So by no means is a general power of attorney a 
quick solution to this. And the thing about having to have a separate one for the banks and for SARS and all those things? I can believe that that may be the case because the banks set their own regulations for signing power. If you think about it, if you are running, pre presuming we can't, or, or on the assumption actually that we can't have joint banking accounts in this country, if you want to give someone power of, of signature on your bank account, there is a specific format of documents that you have to, to sign and execute in order to achieve this. So I purely from a logical perspective and from the fact that the banks regulate their own documents and they have to satisfy themselves that these, the person who is signing on the bank account is who they say they are and they have the necessary authority, I'll, I'll well believe that there may be an additional one required. And the only way to circumvent that is to approach court, be appointed as the curator, and that court order will authorize you to deal with any matter. With anything whether it's with SARS, the banks, whatever the case Now, all this information is in that document that will be yes. that polity.org Yes, I'll, I'll send okay. you the link to, to that article. I'll post it, yeah. It's, it's quite useful to distinguish between the two concepts. There seems to be quite a lot of confusion, and I believe there is a, a number of colleagues that are, are handing these out like, like smarties. <laughs> and okay. um, it's really such a sensitive document. I, I do realize there's no theory against an enduring power of attorney or a conditional one. In other words, for people who want to plan ahead for incapacity. But the fact of the matter is it may still be challenged at court. So if you want to go this route, have it professionally drafted. But no, it's not bulletproof. So we've given, we made you do some extra work. Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was actually very interesting. <laughs> well, we do, we do our best to help. Just a reminder, you tuned to SAFM, South Africa's news and information leader. I'm Karen Key, and this is The Law Report. My guest tonight is attorney Nicolene Skuman, owner and founder of Skuman Attorneys, Conveyances and Notaries Public, practicing here in Cape Town. We're doing a law clinic this evening, so no fixed topic. We're just dealing with some emails now first, but if you can call us in the meantime. The number is 0892 10-2010, Just leave your name and contact number and we'll call you back as soon as we've dealt with the emails. And uh, we've got quite a few, Nicolene, so we need to mm. be quite brief. <clears throat> the next one says, I was convicted in 2008 for being in possession of an unlicensed firearm of which the firearm had no magazine or ammunition. I was later sentenced to three months in prison of which I spent one month and two weeks. Now, in this kind of case, is this kind of case a minor or a serious case? Will I have to be cleared of a criminal record? I'm so desperate for a decent job as my qualifications allow me to. So obviously because of this now, mm. it has a criminal record and is a problem. What well, is the situation here? Well, I believe my colleague dealt with something quite similar in last month's mm. show. Um, essentially, there's a period of 10 years uh, after which when that's ex expired you may approach the relevant high court and, and request for, for the order to be rescinded in, in civil terms, expunged in, in criminal terms. So um, the period of 10 years needs to lapse and then this, this application may be brought. And this doesn't classify as a serious offence. Our serious offences are usually those involving uh, murder, rape, sexual offences, armed robbery and assault with the intention of causing grievous, grievous bodily harm. So those will never fall under this this tenure rule so to speak um, but the we are five years down already so uh, the other option for the listener would obviously be to um, approach our president for pardon 
um, these typically take quite quite some time to process and seeing that there's already five years left before the 10-year rule can uh, has lapsed and therefore the the relevant process can be can be commenced um, it, it may be worth the listeners while to apply for the pardon and if it takes two three four years for an it's answer still less than five. to be forth forthcoming is not um, or she's not sitting in limbo and, and waiting for this Right, next one says, I was recently directly involved in running the fa a family member's funeral, and that is when I learned that things have changed. I had a rude awakening and found the hard way that I need to have an estate executor, a will, etc. This is a new thing in the black communities, and people struggle to understand the processes to be followed. Kindly help us understand what this is all about. The deceased accounts get frozen after the death certificate is issued. How do we then go about getting finance to complete the funeral? How long does it take to round up the estate? How do we authenticate the executors, and who are the players in the whole arena? Well, as you know, this is right Your up my favourite topic. <laughs> <laughs> we, uh, firstly, we run the World's Week once a year, and it's upcoming again uh, in September, October this year. So do watch the press, and I'll uh, inform you in due course once we have the dates for that. Um, and that's really an initiative taking place nationally, which um, would be very valuable for a listener such as this to take part in and to tell friends and family about. Um, other than that, in the practice, we are currently running a special offering for the drafting of basic wills. I'll also send you that link so we can distribute that, along with uh, a special offering for anti-nuptial contracts. Two very vital documents for any adult. Uh, if you're getting married, anti-nuptial contract, absolutely important. As for wills, I can't stress this enough. Any person having any amount of debt should have a will. Do not wait until you have... Uh, enough funds or you have enough goods to leave behind that's not really what it's about it's about those that you leave behind and making sure that the the process is as easy and tra less uh, um, without trauma as, as is possible so um, the concept of the will or executing a will is really to ensure that you um, dictate what happens to your worldly goods after you pass on so that has a practical element to it and it streamlines the administration process which needs to take uh, place by law. So it's about appointing uh, guardians for your minor children, making sure that they are properly taken care of. It's about uh, dishing out what, what you would like to leave behind as a legacy, making sure that people benefit from, from your estate that you want to benefit from your estate. So and then in very broad terms, essentially, that's what a will is and that's what it's about. Uh, our website is filled with information on the topic. So this listener is welcome to go to our website. And on the services page, there's a link to wills and estates. And um, click on that and you'll find about 20, if not more, articles on the topic. Okay, so I, what I will do is I will send this listener uh, the link to the wills um, yes. on your on your website. That would and, be great. And then they can actually, it'll all be there. It'll be easier than us trying to explain it all now because yeah. there's a lot here. No, definitely. And <clears throat> that is, I'm, I'm assuming, is in plain English that yes. we could all understand and yes. we can just follow it because it's going to be listed, what you need to know, what you exactly. need to do. The so only thing I would like to comment on, though, specifically is... Um, uh, an estate or the accounts are frozen after um, someone passes on. That's an anti-fraud measure. So um, how to circumvent that? Leave a will behind. Your executor will then step into your shoes as if, if, as if they were you and wrap up the estate, collect all the money, etc. The executor is someone you nominate and we always say nominate that person full names with an ID number, then it's easy to authenticate. 
and the players in the arena well that's quite a quite a quite a topic in itself the master of the high court is the authority that regulates these um, the administration process and making sure that the rules are complied with that's the government institution dealing with these and then your executor that's the person who like a director of a company has a fiduciary duty a duty to do the best for the people left behind so those are the two main players, the beneficiaries or the people getting these benefits and receiving the legacies are, of course, the, the heirs or the legatees. Legatees being people who get a cash payout or a specific item before the rest of the estate is then divided amongst the heirs. So that's broadly what wills are about and broadly to answer the listeners' questions. For more information on the executor, the role, the responsibilities, there are lots of material on the website. I'll send you the link. Great. Thank you. <clears throat> right. Next question. I'd like to ask how to deal with a debt collector that garnished my salary for 400 Rand and has been doing so since September 2010 without issuing a letter or informing of informing who their client is whom I failed to pay. So they've mm -hmm. obviously been garnishing, they've garnished his salary. They're, he doesn't know who the person is that he's supposed to have paid, and he mm -hmm. never got a letter informing him that he was going to get this money taken off. Well, your employer is the one who uh, implements the garnishing order, order or properly um, cited as the emoluments attachment order, um, which goes off of the salary each month. So the first point would be to approach your employer to ask them on which basis they've been deducting your uh, this payment from the salary, and they have to have a court order or some document in place um, being a court order. And you're quite entitled um, to ask to see it. And if you can't see it, then do approach an attorney and um, have the relevant court records uh, retrieved, have a look at it, see what the position is. Um, my view, uh, garnishee is not in place without it going through the proper court process and once that's been concluded and the relevant court order sent to the employer um, you you cannot proceed with with the any deduction so he, he is quite entitled to go and ask to see the document yes. saying who the, the person is that he owes the money to <clears throat> and he should have a copy of the court order the court order will obviously will uh, say will will list who the uh, uh, original debtor and creditor were and then the amount of judgment taken um, and any costs, etc., all those add-ons to the amount. And then, of course, to approach the creditor or their attorney to say, I would like a statement of account to see um, how far my account has been settled. 2010 to date, that's been three years. So mm. 400 Rand is not a, a small amount. No, to, it's to going on and on and on. Mm. Right, next question says, I need some advice, please. My wife filed for divorce. We are community of property. She and her brother owned the house we stay in. I spend more than five 500,000 rand on the property and paid all the rates and taxes for the last 15 years. The property is valued at 1.2 million. I took out a bond of 330,000, not for building improvement, which I'm paying currently. The bond is registered in her name. My wife is, was having an affair. Now I want to know, am I entitled to the money I spent on the property? Also, Act 770 of 1979, how does the court interpret it? Well, that's the, the, the divorce legislation. So, um, briefly, the marriage in community of property entails you to an undivided 50% share of your spouse's property as well as their, um, their debts. So, I would recommend that this listener gets himself or herself an attorney. And um, well, it's himself because of the wife now. Yes. Oh, okay. Yes, I see. You're quite right. So um, that that one first 
approaches an attorney to uh, look at the court documents and see how this has been handled and there's, if there's any room in the divorce proceedings at this point to include any claim. Um, essentially, a bit of a number crunch needs to take place. But in, in effect, shouldn't he automatically get 50%? 50% of her half. To yes. my understanding, uh, she's a 50% owner with, with her brother, so that means the 50% he effectively owns 25% of. Bond is in her name, um, so he owns 50% of that as well. And one should do a bit of number crunching to see who owns who after all the deductions have been made. If the process is still ongoing, there may may well be, be room for amending any court papers. Otherwise, I'd recommend if there are grounds, and we can only see this once we've seen the documents um, and done all the number crunching, so to speak, um, to bring a, a rescission application, in other words, to uh, amend a rescission or an amendment application to amend the court order to reflect the true state of financial affairs or to rescind it um, and have your day in court, essentially. So, but um, he has got a leg to stand on here, but he may don't leave one. it. You know, there, no, there, don't could leave be, it. there could be something that do they can do. Do approach an attorney and, and have them look at the papers to see what the recourse could be. Right, next question. I would like to know if it's legal for a bank to finance a bond by more than the lending rate, for example, more than 8.5%. Well, that's a bit of a tricky one because our interest rates fluctuate uh, around all sorts of economic factors. So um, it never stays constant. So the banks are bound by the National Credit Act as well as those regulations. The Usury Act has been repealed by, by the enactment of the National Credit Act, especially when it came to maximum interest rates. Generally speaking, your interest rates for credit agreements are capped. And credit agreements, I mean the whole bulk of them, mortgage bonds, credit cards, all these um, facilities that, that are defined in terms of the National Credit Act to not exceed 24% per annum. That's the current rate. So if it's 8.5%, between 8.5 and 24 Technically speaking, we're safe. We'll have to we'll have to look at the bond statements and see how the interest rates have fluctuated, and then compare that to to the maximum rates and the going rate. Right. Okay. Um, next question: What must I do if the other party doesn't want to share after a divorce? Well, I assume that would would mean a, a divorce order has been granted, and they don't want to pay up, for lack of a better phrase. So. Um, in that sense, uh, you can, if you have the court order in hand, you just go and enforce the court order by um, the execution process, which is usually a warrant or, or other means of, of really recouping the money you were awarded by virtue of a court order. So, um, and if that is not the case, that the court order doesn't reflect sharing, then, of course, it will follow the same route as, as the previous listener's situation where you have to approach an attorney and either amend rescind, have your day in court and, and amend the papers to reflect the true state of affairs. And once they do, then uh, enforce them. But if the divorce hasn't happened yet, if they're just talking about the divorce, it all depends on how you married as to how, if it's community of property, yeah. there's the option of the half and half where you have to share if it's um, yes. anti-nuptial contract, it's different. If it's anti-nuptial with accrual, it's, it's different. different. It depends how you married, basically, yes. as to what the courts will say as to how your estate has to be divided up. Definitely. So if there's no court order granting divorce as yet, then um, at this point it's quite advisable to go and seek legal advice, take a copy of your antinuptial contract with if you have one. Hopefully you do. Hopefully you do. Otherwise it's 50-50 right down to the middle, including the debts. Yes, which is the scary part. Definitely. <laughs>
<laughs> well, we've still got uh, three more emails to do and one letter that we received. And um, we've got some calls already lining up on, on there. We've got a few minutes, Nicolene, before we have to go and find out what's happening in the cricket. I'm just going to read out the question. I'm not sure if we're going to get to the answer before we get there. Um there was a letter that said, <clears throat> we had a fraud case. It was amongst the family. What dissatisfied me was that it has been transferred to the community court from the magistrate's court. Does the community court have powers like the other court? Yes. The community court is a division of the district magistrate's court, so it has the same authority as any magistrate's court. Oh, simple, simple. as that. So the community yes. court is pretty much the same yeah, the, when it the comes to decision-making and that sort of thing. The Department of Justice um, actually has a a great user-friendly uh, page on the hierarchy of our courts and with links where you, you click on each one and it gives you a nice two, three-line explanation of, of each different court in our country. Why would it have been transferred from the magistrate's court to the community court? Would, the, you, would that be a reason for that? The community court usually deals with, with what we call the more petty crimes, so shoplifting and those kinds of things. This is a fraud case, apparently. Yes. Well, it depends. Uh, a fraud case maybe to a very, very minor degree in money. Um, so they often refer it out so that the the court role is relieved from congestion and these kind of things. Oh, okay. So, so it's, a, it's a speciality court like our Southern Divorce Court has been split off from the High Court so that we can, can channel our smaller value divorces or where property of a, a lesser value is involved from the High Court, thereby alleviating, alleviating the congestion on the court So roles. the listener shouldn't be too concerned mm. about that? No, definitely not. So if there are, do approach an attorney for advice, but it's got the it, – it's – by virtue of, of the hierarchy of our courts and the law, it's got the same standing. The same power. So he shouldn't be too mm. worried. He's, no. He says he's dissatisfied that it's been moved, but you say there's no difference really. No, no, definitely not. It's and not, not, it's not that are, it's a lesser court or anything. And if you are dissatisfied with the outcome, there are appeals, reviews, mm. all these steps that could be taken to refer it back to a higher court. Right. Well, it's time now to get the latest on the ICC Champions Trophy cricket match between Pakistan and South Africa at Edgbaston with Natalie Germanis. Natalie, good evening. Good evening to you too, this, this was a do-or-die match for us, how, for South Africa. How are we doing? Very well. <laughs> oh, oh, good. Okay, you can carry on talking now. That's an, great. An excellent result, actually. <laughs> <Great>. Okay. <laughs> Pakistan have been bowled out for 167. <gasps> that's wonderful. That means that South Africa have won by 67 runs. And they've kept their hopes alive of making the semi-finals. Mizbal Haq made 55. Nasir Jamshed 42. But it was Ryan McLaren who took 4 for 19 in 8 overs. That really helped South Africa. <coughs> Excuse me, I've got a, a bit of a frog in my throat at the moment. I think it's all the excitement of the match. So, Karen, very good result for South Africa. Winning by 67 runs. They still have a chance of making the semi-finals. Well, that was definitely worth crossing to you for, Natalie. Thank you very much. <laughs> I love giving good results to you, Karen. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. Go off and feel better. But thanks so much for uh, the wonderful news. You've made my evening. Thank, thank you very you. much. Enjoy the rest of yours. You too. Thank good you. Good night to you. Thanks, Natalie. The Law Report with Karen Key. Well, just a few more emails and then we'll go straight to the calls. Uh, next question was, I was charged with fraud of about 7,000 Rand in 2011, December, at work, and I agreed with my employer, the bank, to pay the money back and we did sign the acknowledgement of debt. Together, on top of this, the case was opened and I was detained in the police cells for a weekend pending the court appearance the next Monday. At the court, I was given a 
was given bail until to appear next month as the investigation was still on. The following month I went to court and the case was postponed again. I went to see my manager and she told me the case was not done properly. And then I appeared for the third time in March and I was told the same story at the court until the magistrate threw the matter out of the court explaining to me that she's waiting for my employers. Until today I don't know what where my future stands. I would like to know whether I have a serious criminal record against my name as my lawyer also told me that I have to wait for my ex-employer's call or summons until now, which is 2013. So this is two years ago. Please advise. Well, this is a really tough situation. From from what um, the email states, it's, it's quite clear, uh, or I can assume, that the matter was actually never heard. No. Um, so there shouldn't be a record um, if the matter hasn't been heard. You are innocent until proven guilty in terms of our criminal law and our justice system. So... In, from the, the contents of this, my answer would be no. But obviously it would be a, a better idea or a safer, res, less um, presumptuous idea to approach the relevant police station and apply for a, um, a police clearance certificate. That's the quickest that you'll see whether there's any criminal record or not. And if so, um, it should be a, a lesser offence. And therefore, if 10 years have, uh, have passed, you, you could ha apply to have it expunged. So there are options, but... Um, it just seems odd that, I mean, he made the arrangement with the employer to pay the money back. Yeah. And then they signed the acknowledgement of debt. And then suddenly they opened a case and stuck him in jail. Yeah, that that's pretty awful to handle it that way. Um Acknowledgements of debt are commonly used in, in the civil part of our law um, to recoup monies that have been misappropriated mm. in this instance or um, otherwise embezzled, etc. So if the proceeds are then paid back to the relevant person, but there's still a criminal element to it. Mm. But um, they don't seem to have taken it any further. Maybe there was a lack of evidence. Remember, the burden resting on the, the shoulders of the prosecutor is much heavier in a criminal case than it is on an attorney uh, dealing with a civil case. A civil case is on the balance of probabilities, what is most plausible, while uh, a criminal matter is one beyond reasonable doubt. So it could be very likely that there isn't documentary evidence proving the guilt, and as such... Um, well, as you said, the, be the best thing now is go to the police station, yeah. apply for... Um, police clearance. A, a police clearance you certificate. You can, yeah, and then you can, you, when that arrives, you'll see, you'll soon see if there is anything yes. or not. I believe <laughs> it takes a couple of months these days. Mm. Um, I applied for one for for visa purposes a couple of years ago, and that took quite some time. But I believe these days with the electronic system, it's quite it's quick. Quite quick. Good option. Right. Um, next question. I live in a small town on the Cape South Coast, and I don't know who to report a scrupulous ex-lawyer to. The lawyer is no longer on the Cape Law Society's role and there's so much unfinished business he's not attended to. He's not left a forwarding name and address for any law firm to follow up his outstanding business. There are three different individuals who have all instructed him to handle motor vehicle accident claims on their behalf. The claims are still outstanding and the Road Accident Fund has confirmed that no claims have been lodged by this ex-lawyer. What recourse do these clients have, if any? These cases date back between three, and se three to seven years. Oh, this is horrific. The fact is, if, if this person is no longer registered with the Cape Law Society, well, if they ever were registered with the Cape Law Society, you don't have any disciplinary recourse. You can't report or um, this person or the unprofessional or negligent behavior to the Law Society and their disciplinary structures cannot assist. 
it's very much like contracting with a builder that isn't registered with mm. a relevant society. So you'll, the only recourse in this would be to pursue the attorney or ex-attorney well, directly. I can't even find him. There are ways and means of finding. Ooh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Tracing agents, mm. uh, private investigators, these guys all use lawful ways to, to trace people. Maybe it's it's worth for worth it for all these individuals to stand together, brief an attorney who is properly registered with the relevant law society, and have them at least make a, a reasonable attempt at finding this person. Now, just one thing that he says here, that these outstanding claims for the Road Accident Fund, and apparently they've confirmed now that no claims were lodged by the lawyer. Now, these claims date back between three to seven years. Is it too mm. late for them now to lodge these claims? Because that, I think, what is what the problem is. They're waiting for payment, but they can't get anything because the lawyer never, ever did lodge the claim in yeah. the first. Is it too late now? Well, I, I don't practice in, in that area of law. It's very much a special a specialist field, and the rules of prescription always apply. So the three-year three rule. Mm. However, there are obviously um, special circumstances in, in these instances, and one can at the very least raise these issues when lodging a claim now. There are various attorneys in the Cape Town area specializing in this field of law um, who are are really good at what they do. Um, so I would recommend that at least go and, and seek the advice of a specialist in this field. Maybe there is recourse, but bearing in mind the three-year prescription rule does generally apply. Right, last email. Gosh, we've already had a lot of them tonight. <laughs> um, this very should be quite brief. It says, please could you give us some information on when it is okay to give one's ID number? Everyone nowadays seems to require your ID number. And then it's a long story about visiting a friend in a complex and at the gate the security guard punched the car registration into a little credit card type machine and then came to the window and asked for the ID number. So now they have my photo from the CCTV, my car registration number and my ID number. And these are apparently checked against the auto database. Is this legal? Why did they not then also ask for the ID numbers of the passengers? Um, also on the way out, the boom was simply lifted and no check made that I was actually the legal owner or driver who had entered the complex. While I'm fully aware of the need to have strict security control, it concerns me that I have no knowledge what database all this information would then reside in and mm. who would have access to it and for what purpose. This is quite a legitimate concern, I must say. Um, it, I, I logically cannot understand why a private residence or a complex would require you to uh, provide this type of information. Surely when we sign in at, at these um, type of complexes, yes, you do give your name and your cell phone number and all these things. Uh, it's common practice for security purposes. But checking the registration number against the auto database, that, that's, that's... Pushing it a bit. Pushing it a bit. And also of what, how is this of the complex's concern, whether or not you've, you've paid your traffic fines, etc. It's nothing. Um, so maybe a poorly thought out security measure on the part of the body corporate um, one was always way up the two competing rights and in this in this instance the right of security to the residents of that complex now she wants to know is it legal versus though, all of her this. right of privacy and I fail to see how they can justify how to limit someone's right to privacy and choosing which type of information to divulge to who um, in this setting where it's not a government institution and whose interest it is to see it's not a whether you have key point or anything. We whether or not you've you've paid your traffic fine, etc. Mm. So and whether your license is in good standing and all these things. So 
Um, no, I from the CAF, I I don't think I'll, they can justify this constitutionally. Right, great. Okay, some callers. We're going to get some callers. I think we have Stanley on the line in Springs. Stanley, good evening to you. Sorry, it's been a while. Evening. How are you, Karen? Very well, thank you. How are you? I'm fine. Um, could I please ask um, two questions? Eh? Yes, very briefly, Stanley, because we're very short of time and we've got some calls to get through. We've been taking a long time on the emails tonight. Oh, okay, no, I will try to be brief. So I just want to know, let's say the parties are married in commuter property. So the other parties, let's say husband is, uh, is outside the Republic of South Africa. During divorce, how, so I just want to know which law is applicable to uh, divorce. Let's say they are divorcing here in South Africa, but they, they were married outside uh, of the Republic of South Africa. So the, the second question, I just want to know, on the same, question, on the same marriage of often committal property, uh, I just want to know, is it possible that uh, the party can enter an anti-neutral contract? After you've married in community of property? Yeah, let's say they are married, married in committal property, so, so is it possible that the parties can, uh, can enter into that uh, anti-neutral contract? Do you want to change it from one to the other, Nicolene? Well, let's deal with the first question. Um, okay, the, Again, not a simple answer to, to the question of if you are married in a specific country, you are not necessarily married in terms of that law. So let's say a couple gets married here and they are not from South Africa and then they move abroad somewhere else. Um, okay. Because the marriage was solemnized here, in other words, we've had the ceremony here, the papers were signed, doesn't mean South Africa and South African law governs that marriage. Okay. South Africa follows the, the law of the husband's domicile. So if you have two people who get married, regardless of where they come from, if the husband intends and considers yeah. South Africa as his permanent home for the foreseeable future, then South African law governs that marriage. And wherever you move in the world after that, South African law will be applied in a foreign court to dissolve your marriage. So okay. if they get divorced, South African will, law will then apply. So it really goes back to what was the intention of the parties. So they got married outside then. of South Africa, he says. And if the intention was to come back and the law of the husband's domicile brings it back here, then South African law applies. Okay, okay. That, that one I, I understand. Okay, so there's an article on our website about this under anti-nuptial contracts. I'll send the, that link to Karen as well. Just look at the Facebook, Stanley, by tomorrow morning. It's Law on SAFM, and all those links will be up there. As for the anti-nuptial contract question, generally speaking, you have to sign it before you get married. If you want to change your marital property regime, in other words, if you want to change from in community of property to out of community of property with or without accrual, regardless of, of which one you elect, you have to approach the High Court, uh, give all your creditors notice. The High Court will then consider whether it's in everyone's best interest to allow you to enter into an anti-nuptial contract. So it's a 50-50 gamble and a very expensive one at that. The longer okay, you are married, okay. the more it costs because the more people you have to get involved and give notice. And especially the bank, if you have a mortgage bond and you're married in community of property, they have two people earning money who they can pursue if you, one doesn't pay. If you want to split the, um, the estate in two, in other words, by having an anti-nuptial contract, the bank can only take half of what they were previously entitled to. So your banks are usually the ones who oppose such an application. Okay, thank you very much. I understand okay. now. Good thank luck. you, Stanley. Good luck with that. Okay, thanks. Good, good night to you. Off to Johannesburg. Sam, good evening. Hi, good evening, ladies. Hi, Hi. how can we help you? 
Um, please do help me. Uh, mine is short and to the point. Um, we had a nephew who passed away last year in August. He was employed at uh, ShopRite. Um, he unfortunately died um, accidentally, knocked down by a car accident, hit and run. And uh, he was never married, 30 years old. The One of the co-workers came forward claiming that um, she was financially dependent on the deceased. And we brought it to the attention of the, the, the um, uh, retail retirement fund that uh, the lady who is alleging to have been financially dependent on, on my nephew is actually married, legally married, to someone else and not to our nephew. And the question was, why is a married woman entitled to a claim saying that she was the, 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 the she was financially dependent on the nephew? Well, um, I don't know if it makes sense to you. Yeah, no, no, it does. Thank you. Um, essentially, in terms of our insurance law, whether it's a pension or other form of insurance payout um, yeah. or, or benefit that you're entitled to by virtue of such a policy, you have yeah. to fulfill the definition of spouse or yeah. child. In other words, yeah. lawful descendant, whether it's an adopted child or a, a, a biological child. Um, yes. There is no room for other dependents. That's why there was such a, a a challenge for for people in in homosexual relationships and for also people who cohabit um in other words people who do not get married but do live together uh, in terms of an agreement that's why mm -hmm. such an agreement is vital for those people and sometimes mm -hmm. still does not entitle them to that those benefits under those okay. policies so okay. i really don't see how this person is able to institute such a claim lawfully and I would recommend that you do um, oppose that or get yourself an attorney to oppose that. Because what we've been told by, by the, the, the uh, representative of the trustees that is that um, they are aware of the fact that this claimant now mm -hmm. is legally married to someone else. Mm -hmm. However, um, they know that she is in a process of divorce. So I said, but if this lady is still legally married to someone else, yeah. How can she lay a claim on the estate of my nephew? No, well, that's... Um... Were they living together or something in the meantime, Sam? No, no, no. Um, they were working to, to together at a retail store in Whitbank. Not staying together. Yeah. Working together. Okay, so there was no, no sure. sort of... Sort of uh, uh, even, mm. even if there was a relationship um, yes. of, of living together, that by... By, by default doesn't entitle you to such a benefit. If she's instituting a claim against the estate, that's yes. where the master of the High Court comes in. They have okay. to look at all the claims received um, together with the executor who's dealing with all the administration in this entire process. And okay. if I were that executor, I would simply deny the claim. I would, I would not process it, and, and this person is then welcome to go to court and prove their claim. But from what you're saying, I can't see any legal basis for, for this person claiming on, on the grounds of being a dependent. So, great. no, it, it's something that should be contested. And no, great. Thank you very much. Uh, we, we, we just wanted to like uh, make sure that 
when we say no, we are saying no in terms of the uh, law, and not just to to say no out of um, yeah. Uh, See, it's a, a very different story if she was owed money and therefore she's instituting a claim against the estate. In other words, That's if she if she provided uh, if he, he lent money from her. Um, or, or borrowed money rather from her, then of course the, that's a bit of a different situation than saying I'm entitled to money because I was financially dependent on this person. In order to be financially dependent lawfully, you must either be a spouse or you must be a, a, a minor child or someone who's dependent because they have not become financially independent from, from their caregiver. Um, so it could be a, a sibling who is, is maybe incapacitated or, or frail or something like that. But in, in this circumstance, I really fail to see the legitimacy of, of this claim. Did, does, does she, does, Sam, does she say how she's dependent on him? Does she say why she is a dependent? She's saying when she met the uh, deceased, mm -hmm. she was in a process of uh, divorcing her husband. She mm -hmm. is still legally, till this day, Married to a husband. Mm. Now, the, the 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 where the the family had a problem was, we said we don't know you. The deceased never ever introduced you to the family. You are Mrs. X, and he's Mr. Y. Now, what right have you got to uh, lay a claim on the um, pension fund of the the uh, deceased? Mm. And she she said she. Uh, submitted a, uh, an affidavit to the um, administrators of the uh, the pension fund to say that whilst working at this retail store, they were sharing a room together. But I said, but you were sharing a room to, together with my nephew. In other words, you were having an extramarital affair because you are married to Mr. Y, you are staying with P, and uh, what right have you got? Other than to, to say that you had an extramarital affair, if you had any. Sure. Mm. Even, even you are legally married to your husband till today. Well, it, uh, I stand by what I've said. And in the yes. instance of, of, of the common law marriage, you know, the, the perception that exists, if you live with someone long enough, then you become their spouse or you become yes. deemed to be that. That's, that's absolute nonsense. It, it doesn't work like that. That's why we we have the law uh, that states if you are living with someone, you are not married, you need to enter into a cohabitation agreement. Um, and there's even a piece of legislation on the way that will compel couples to register that agreement. As you register it, uh, your antinuptial contract with the deeds office, you'll register that agreement with Home Affairs. So okay. that piece of legislation is on the way just to prove the point. If you live with someone, and this is for everyone out there who are not married and you're living together, um, you need to have wills in place and you need to have a cohabitation agreement. Otherwise, you're in the position where you've legitimately gotten a right um, to, uh, and you've maybe become financially dependent on the other person and you will not be entitled to any benefit, whether it's from a, a pension or in any other uh, insurance benefit or even um, contribution to the joint mortgage that you've engaged in, for example. So it's really important that the documents are in order. It doesn't just happen by default. Sam, I think you've got a very good case by the sounds of it. Okay. Thank I think you very much, ladies. And, it's a pleasure. Uh, yeah, and lastly, we have said, no, we do not agree because they wanted the lady to uh, get a 
40% portion and the nominated beneficiary by the deceased to get 60%. We have objected to, to the um, uh, distribution proposal, and but they insist that there is nothing that we can do. We must give a 40%. And we said, but this person is a Mrs. Soren, so what do we do now if they keep on saying, you know what, it's either you, you accept this uh, distribution proposal and or nothing. So... Then do we have to like, get, get a lawyer or what do we do? You either get yourself an attorney, which is always the first prize, or yes. you refer the matter to the ombudsman for... Um, pension, the pension fund's yes. adjudicator or... The yes, thank you. If it's a pension thank fund, yes. 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 Good evening. Thank you thank, Good luck to you, Sam. Thanks for getting through. Good night. Thanks. Right, off to Johannesburg. MacGyver, good evening. Good evening, Carol. One um, question. Right, Okay. I was married in 1995, and I was divorced in 2005 in absentia. Then the portion of the pension she scratched to it, it was not part and parcel of uh, the decree. My question is that, uh, can I make uh, a follow-up on that? To award the pension? Then towards the pension fund, mm. because we're married in communal property, and this uh, divorce was done in my absence. And I only realized it after six months. That was 2005. Well, of course, you can always apply for the amendment or the rescission. In other words, cancellation of a a court order if you have reasonable grounds to to do so. And um, I would advise that you uh, obtain legal advice. In other words, appoint yourself an attorney and then uh, approach court and, and vary the order. And then include okay. what you want to include in it or exclude what you want the court to exclude from it. All right. Provided so that you can can bring reasonable grounds to the table for, for saying why you would like it to be handled that way. Okay. Thank you very much. It's a and pleasure. the expiry date for this, how many years? You see, the problem with the variation of court orders is that um, falls under the court rules. And the court rules generally give you 20 days. 20 working days after you've become aware of the amendment or the or the error on the court order, which it doesn't mean you don't have recourse now, it just means you'll have to bring what we call a condemnation um, application in addition to prove to court that you didn't purposefully wait this long and all of that, that maybe it was financial circumstances or something else um, forcing you to wait this long before you've brought the request. So you really okay. you do need an attorney. Don't attempt that on your own. When did this happen, MacGyver? 2005. That's a oh, long gosh, time yes, ago. so that's eight years now. But if you can prove reasonable grounds for condemnation, the court may still at least hear the matter. So best to go and see an attorney and to tell them exactly, step for step, why it's taking you that long, and maybe one can, can still bring the application. Thank you very much. Okay, okay, good luck. Thanks for getting through to us. Good night to you. Good, good. Um, we've got a few minutes. I just want to talk. You said you had a number of special things going on this month. Do tell. Yes, yes, we do, actually. And I was very much um, also inspired by some of the emails we got. So um, we've got a a special range of special offerings, uh, first of which in terms of conveyancing, we've uh, issued a rate sheet. So you can go onto our website and see exactly what a conveyancing is. We're talking about this website all night. Let's just tell people where they're supposed to go because we're not telling them where (laughs) to go. It's www.skumanlaw. It's S-C-H-O-E-M-A-N, law, skumanlaw.co.za. And that information is on the Facebook page, Law on SAFM. It's, it'll be up there later tonight, all Nicolene's contact details, the telephone number for the office and the website address. So we, every time mm. we say it's on the website, <laughs> that's the website. That's the website. Okay, so what else is on there? 
Well, um, that will that you can find under the services page, and under the services page, our full service complement with a whole lot of uh, free information and details on what executors are and how to choose a good one, and all these things as we've spoken today. Um, we also have a great question and and answer page, um, and then in addition, we do a monthly newsletter. So we see what happens in in the law and what could be relevant to specifically business owners and and. Uh, people in the property market and we update them as to what you need to look out for or and so forth so that's also free of charge go to the website there's a little link for to register for our newsletter and then you get all these these great tidbits of information free of charge so we've got the special offering or the 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 reduced rate offering rather on conveyancing services so we've got a comprehensive rate sheet and it tells you exactly what a property transfer is going to cost you and we we do it at a bit of a more competitive price than the traditional guidelines we also do wills at reduced rates at the moment so there's a page for wills and anti-nuptial contracts we offer them as a, a package deal so well, to those speak, are nicolene's favorite <laughs> topics both of those and then uh, we, we also do quite a lot of material work for our foreign uh, client base. And uh, we've, we've subsequently realized that we have one of few firms who know how to authenticate documents, which you want to use overseas. So if you have a property there and you need to sign some documents, we can help you sign them properly and get it done in a great turnaround time. So um, that's, that's essentially that. And then most of all, we've got a small business package. So for all of those who have this great idea and you want to start a business or you've just started, and you need to sort the legal stuff out. Uh, we've got very, a, a very good, um, uh, package for, for small businesses specifically. And we are very competitive and always willing to negotiate to help our small businesses achieve success. And then, as you mentioned earlier, your favorite time of year is coming up with yeah. Bulls Week and that's September. September to uh, to celebrate <clears throat> the sixth birthday of the firm. So very excited about that and we'll we'll do something really nice this year. Because that's National Wills Week. So for yes. the listeners out there, it's not just happening here in Cape Town. No, no, It's definitely. around the country and there's normally a list of of participating yes. firms and you can go on there and it's just the basic will it's not all anything complicated or no. all added bits of stuff it's the base if you don't have a will this is the perfect opportunity come September to Great. go and get this basic will done you'll Definitely. make Nicolene very happy yes you will <laughs> It is really a great thing for our community. So, you know, when don't don't be afraid. It's it's a very friendly environment. We'll even consider going out into the communities this year and, and really to make it approachable and simple and and really a, a very positive experience as opposed to be a very morbid or negative experience. They should have an anti-nuptial contract week as well. They should. You will be surprised how many people don't have one of those. And they are advised by all sorts of role players in the industry not to, uh, don't worry, you don't have to sign it now. You can always sign it after. No, you can't. <laughs> you can, but it's going to cost you a lot of money if you want to sign it after you've gotten married. And so, it is, well, in your view, far better to have an anti-nuptial contract than a community of property. Oh, definitely. It's very risky these days. I mean, we don't know if one decision is taken poorly or something happens and, and the finances don't work out. Then everyone, both spouses, in other words, is involved in, in the sinking ship, so to speak. Ach, and it's got a whole lot of administrative concerns and all these things. So really, I think in today's day and age, transparency, openness, um, equality and all these things between spouses, you are, after all, in a, an equal partnership. 
it's nothing nothing less than right to to at least have it transparent from the so outset. So we'll be working on anti-nuptial contract week. <clears throat> yes. Well, my thanks <laughs> once again this evening to Nicolene Skuman, owner and founder of Skuman Attorneys, Conveyances and Notaries, public practicing here in Cape Town. And she's been my guest on tonight's edition of the Law Report program. We'll be running legal clinics like this one on the second Monday of every month. And Nicolene will be back with us again for another law clinic on Monday the 8th of July. Nicolene, once again, thank you so much for joining us on the show this evening. Thank you for having me. It was great. The Law Report is on the air on SAFM every Monday evening between 9 and 10. And in next week's law program, we'll be talking labor law and specifically about retrenchment with attorney Michael Bagram. We won't be taking any calls on the show next week, but if you're interested in just how retrenchment works and what's involved, make sure to tune in to The Law Report next week. That's Monday the 17th of June. And I'll be back with you again tomorrow evening just after 9 with our monthly phone-in on health matters. And this month we'll be doing a general health clinic with Dr. Schall von Lochrenberg, Regional Medical Director for International. National SOS Southern Africa. And before we go, a reminder that if you need any information regarding the law report, you can find it on Facebook. Just go to Law on SAFM. If you'd still like to contact me directly, you can email me on law at safm.co.za. Stephen Kirk is up now with some nighttime music. Hi, Stephen.